Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today I am going to share an interview that was done of me on a friend's podcast out here in Seattle. So uh, my good friend and fellow trainer, Stephen Davis, came down from the city, he came down from Seattle, Capitol Hill, and he came out to the headquarters to get a training session in and to record a podcast for his show. His show is called Fit for Fitness, and I was actually episode five, so it is a new podcast, um, one that I think you guys will like. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link in the description. I asked him if I could share it on our podcast because... Honestly, it was just a great conversation that really happens a lot when I'm able to talk with somebody in person, like live in the studio, so to speak. So he came to my office. We talked about a lot of different things, but it kind of centered around my coaching approach, especially in regards to um, using non-scientific methods to not necessarily defy science, but abide by science or just use what I need from science. And so he actually came into it wanting to kind of like have me debunk science a little bit, come into it like, hey, what non-scientific methods do you use? When do you not agree with the science? How are you, how is your coaching differ from the science? And a lot of it circled back to how I use non-science based or non-proven methods that are more just from my experience and anecdote uh, as a trainer and a coach for over a decade and how I use those things to make sure that the client is still abiding by the scientific principles to get the best results possible. Um, so we kind of bounced around between training and nutrition, but it was, it was truly an episode around like the art of coaching and how science matters a lot, but there's just so much that science and research studies cannot prove. And the only way to truly understand what those things are, are to be coached by or become a coach with a lot of experience, which I believe I am. And and I'm happy to share some of that with you today. So I think you guys are going to like this podcast. Again, this is uh, my episode, episode number five from the Fit for Fitness podcast with Stephen Davis. And I'm going to link all of his uh, links and a link to his show and all that kind of stuff in the description of this episode. Make sure you go over there and download the episode on his. Show me some love. Make sure that uh, he knows what episode gets the most downloads from our listeners. But we appreciate you guys for listening. Let's dive into this episode of the Fit for Fitness podcast. Be it business, be it training, be it nutrition, it kind of feels like that's how you are all the time. I just wanted to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah. Dope. Let's do it. I mean, as you started talking, I was like, fuck it, let's just hit record because... There's no good way to intro yeah. that, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. obviously you have your own podcast, so you'll do an intro separately, but you're out here. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I love the topic in general because I think that, I don't know, so many people now, because I even think about, I mean, like how long have you been doing this, man? We, it's probably pretty similar to me. I started in 2010, so like it's been a, years. Yeah. yeah, it's been a minute, right? Yeah. If somebody told you in 2010, like, is that evidence-based? You'd be like, what the fuck does evidence-based mean? I was... Doing LL Cool J's platinum workout. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, point being, right? We we used other people's experience. You know what I mean? If it wasn't like celebrities or famous people, and I, you know, you probably after that started getting into the weeds of things. Obviously, you go to people like Dave Tate, uh, Louis Simmons, uh, even like in the bodybuilding world, John Meadows, Christian Thibodeau. Like they're just doing shit. Now I look back and I'm like, are those people science-based? I would say, yeah, like they understand this, the principles of science, especially when we look at like progressive overload and um, pro- progressive resistance. Um, uh, what is it? The gas, uh, 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 something adaptive syndrome. But like point being is uh, 
there's certain elements of science that were back then still, but people didn't glorify evidence. They didn't glorify research. It wasn't like, well, if there isn't a research paper on that specific method, I don't trust it. And I feel like that's where a lot of it is gone. And as of late, especially, I've been trying to publicly give it some pushback. I think for a long time, I kind of naturally did, but it was, uh, I was almost like insecure, not insecure, but kind of afraid in a way to, to come out publicly and be like, I don't care that that's not evidence-based or like I'm doing this because I know it works regardless of what evidence says, whether there's none on it or there's some against it. But now I just, you know, I'm at a point where I'm like, man, number one, I just don't care what people have to say to an extent. Um, Number two, if, if I'm seeing it help people, that's why I do what I do. So who cares? Um, And number three, at the end of the day, like, there's there's just not enough. The more you actually learn about research, the more you realize there's never going to be enough research to prove everything and there's never going to be a perfect study. Mm-hmm. So even in some of the stuff that I do that isn't quote-unquote completely backed by science, I would argue that I don't even think you can do the perfect study to give me the answer I need, okay. whether it's the, the sample size of people, the types of people you're taking through it, the duration of the study, the things you're measuring. Like there's just so many things. And that's not a shot to researchers. Their job is fucking hard. But you can't create a perfect study, right. you know. So, right. And so, with each person that you have in front of you, it's kind of like your own version of said study, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so when you have somebody, and you know, maybe they're like, "I want to try this thing," and you might be getting like, "You're like, okay, well, like we know that this kind of aligns more with what we know is evidence based, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to give that a shot." Like, when is there? Are there times where you're like? it's this actually just doesn't really make sense to even try out yeah versus like we actually know that this is mm-hmm. going to be the best thing for you yeah i think uh like a good a good way to look at that too is like even like calories in versus calories out that's like gravity you know <laughs> to a certain extent you're just like yeah like this method i think works there's not a lot of research to prove that this thing does what i think does however as long as it's not going against the clearly defined scientific principle of calories in versus calories out is what it is, you know? So a lot of people with intermittent fasting, for example, people were pushing that and they were trying to like find reasons why it worked outside of it just was like, you're skipping breakfast and that cuts calories. Ultimately, that's what's going on here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But that's even like, that's a good point too, is like, I'll use intermittent fasting with somebody if it allows them to adhere to the scientific principle better. You know, it's even like uh, the the muscle and strength pyramids. And this isn't a shot at that because I think Eric Helms did a great job with that. It was one of the things that really got me into a lot of the evidence-based stuff. Um, but I've been asked often, like, do you agree with that? And I'm like, I agree with it theoretically, but I can't tell you how many times me dialing in somebody's meal timing or nutrient timing, which is way above macros, micros, calories, is the only way I got them to actually adhere to their macros that I wanted them to adhere to are the calories, right? Mm-hmm. If I didn't dial that routine in, which was focused on nutrient timing, they wouldn't hit the calories. Right. Or in another regard, um, sometimes, it, do you ever miss like the, when you first got into lifting, how much shit you thought was doing things that wasn't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> It's like exciting, right? Like there was something cool about that. Yeah, there was actually I was just I was just having a conversation with Tris about this. I was like, dude, sometimes it's just about the magic. <laughs> and it's like it, like it might not do anything, but it kind of makes it feel special and it like like pre-workout. Mm-hmm. I'm like it's kind of just about the magic and setting the ritual and it's like I get into this thing by doing this and it's, it's it might be weird, but yeah. 100%. Well, and, and, you know, for people, 
the art of coaching to an extent uses that as a way to trick people into what actually works, you know? So if, if me laying out this myth, mythical meal timing thing gets you hyped up and gets you to adhere to your calories, which is really what is science-based and what I want you to do, then I'm winning, you know? It's not, that's not a negative thing, but like the science gurus who aren't in the trenches actually working with people will never allow that to be okay. You know what I'm saying? So, right. um, and I can think of a lot of scenarios where to me that makes sense. I can even think of like, so diet breaks, for example. This was one that I gave a lot of pushback to because all this research came out that just showed it is purely psychological. There's absolutely zero physiological changes in there. There was a little bit of research to show uh, muscle endurance improved. So I guess that's physiological because that's like physical mm-hmm. attributes. But it's obvious you restore glycogen for a full week. You're going to be able to crank out more reps. Yeah. I would also say if you did, if you, if you did a six-month diet which is longer than the study that found this, and you used a diet break every third week, and it allowed you to squeeze out more reps and not gain more weight because you controlled the level of intake. I mean, to me, that's going to lead to more muscle retention at the end of it or muscle growth potentially, recomp, right? But we don't have long enough studies. Um, there was the one where it was like 5-2 diets. So it was like five days on, two days off. And the two-day refeed group retained more muscle tissue, but then people bounced back at it and were like, well... If you're doing the bod pod, it's just sensing more water because you're doing the bod pod after the refeeds. Mm. Totally true. So you can't really say it retain more muscle. However, muscle is 65% water. So if we're more consistently fueling the muscle with more water, it's probably going to train harder, train better, recover better. Like you're going to be less likely to get injured, less better recovery, less cramps. Like, I don't know. That to me is going to lead to more muscle retention. Um, if we just go by what is defined in research, we can't say that. But if we just think about it, practically speaking, it's probably what's going to happen um and then the other thing with the whole diet break situation too is like there was an interesting study on uh the placebo effect and i i fucking love placebo studies but they there's a few different ones one was uh an aerobic study so we everybody has an aerobic gene that's why some people are just great at endurance sport um doesn't mean you're going to be the best just means you're more likely to progress with that than someone who doesn't but they took all these people in the study they test their aerobic capabilities with test and then they did the gene factor. They took all the people who had the gene, told them they didn't. Took all the people who didn't have the gene, told them they did. And the test results switched when they retested them, like later on. So they started training them, then they retested them. The people who actually didn't have the gene, but were told had the gene, did better and improved. And they did better than the group that did have the gene that was told they didn't. Because their mind just shifted. And they automatically assumed, like, either I'm going to be great at this or I'm not. Um, and they did the same thing with the milkshake. They, two groups had the same uh, milkshake calories wise one group said it was like 200 calories one was like 600 calories everybody had a 400 calorie milkshake and it was like 210 and 617 but like roughly speaking two four six right um the group that was told they had the 600 calorie shake their literal hunger hormones changed after during the shake so leptin ghrelin metabolism all these things shifted and they reported less hunger less cravings more satiety after drinking the shake, whereas the group that had the lower calorie shake did not see those same changes and was still hungry and not satiated after the shake, even though they had the same amount of calories. So like the way we think can literally change things in our body. And the reason I'm saying all this is because if I have somebody who needs a diet break, I think physiologically, because they're stressed the fuck out, Mm -hmm. they're a mom with three kids, they're training five days a week, they're in the pursuit of a fat loss phase, all of which, again, you won't find in a study because studies are using usually college kids who have no responsibilities. So like... How much is that applicable? I mean, it is still, but you got to consider these things, right? In the trenches, it's just different. Yeah. And so if I tell this person, 
we're going to take a diet break. And I believe it's going to help you because I think it's going to reduce cortisol. I think if we reduce cortisol and stress hormones, we are going to see a byproduct of other hormones improving or kind of having more of like a protective insurance policy, so to speak, so we can help your thyroid, help all these things. Um, And maybe I'm like walking on a brand, you know, I'm like reaching with this, but I can almost guarantee this person's going to see better changes because they believe it too. Because your mind is going to shift, right? So some people will listen to that and be like, so you're basically lying. (laughs) No. Um, In a way, you could interpret it that way. But again, like if you look at the research, like I just, I can't fully grab onto the idea that a diet break is purely psychological. Mm -hmm. If they're using clientele that is far different from what, like I don't think those people typically have hormonal issues, right? If you look at Matador, again, they didn't see any real hormonal changes. Those people, those were obese sedentary individuals, before the study. So like, again, we're not talking about a person who just wants to lose the last 10 pounds of weight, has a high stress job, has multiple kids, is training their fucking ass off. Like they have a lot of stress in their body. I got to imagine things change. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So um, a little bit of a rant, but I think, I, I think it's just context is so specific. Right. You know what we're saying? Do you th- so, I mean, given the fact that we have like this body of research out there, do you think there's something that somebody can do that is optimal for them that maybe doesn't line up exactly with the science because it's like, you're talking about, okay, this gets them to adhere. This gets them to commit for longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. Can somebody still get optimal results without having like exactly lined up with the science or what is um, deemed a hundred percent evidence-based or is there some room for interpretation in some of those things? I think so. I think that, so I think a good example for that would be um, if we look at like progressive overload in RIR separately, but in the same situation. So for example, we know that if you do uh, basically like at the end of the day, whether you're training for six reps or eight reps or 12 reps or whatever, I mean, you're probably going to build the same amount of muscle as long as you reach a certain proximity of failure, right? Um, we also know that intensifiers, so supersets and drop sets and pulses or partials or half reps or anything like that is most likely not that beneficial based on research because it lowers your volume, right? When I do those, it increases metabolic muscular fatigue too quickly. And then I can't do as much volume by the end of the day. And that's going to lead to less results. However, like if we do it in real world setting, those might be the only way that people actually reach a significant reps in reserve, right? right? Or a or certain proximity Somebody failure. might not have even been close. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's common, dude. I started doing this with a lot of my clients where um, they have four sets of lunges or squats or uh, I usually try to avoid a zero RIR on back squats and shit like that, unless it's yeah. like a brand new person, yeah. but I feel confident in their form because I know they're just not actually going to get there. But I would start doing a, a descending RIR. So it'd be like set one is three, set two is two, set three is one, and then set four, mm-hmm. you're going to failure. And watching the weights lifted and like the awareness people were gaining from it was just crazy because they were like, holy shit, I did a zero RAR and I got 15 reps with the same weight I did for 10 reps on a three RAR on the first set. This doesn't make sense. And I'm like, yeah, it's because you just didn't realize how close you were to failure. So sometimes you have to use those intense fires or going to failure, which again is like stay three reps away from failure. I can't buy into that because if you work with real people in the real world, that's just not the case. So I think this is where, like, that's a perfect situation of, like, am I defying the laws of science? No. It's just that a a study is so insanely controlled that they can ensure that, for a fact, 
this person knows how to go to failure. We're going to gauge their proximity to failure. They eliminate the variables that could change it. Haven't they done studies where they're like most people hundred percent don't accurately gauge yep. how far they are from failure? Exactly. Yeah. So when they do studies on actual RIR showing that you can get the same amount of growth, let's say, or strength from, and strength, I would say is different than hypertrophy for sure. There's more research to support going to failure for hypertrophy is better than strength. Absolutely. Because it's neurological. Yeah. The strength is. And it's a skill, like the skill of the movement. Exactly. Itself, the technique of the movement itself. Like yep. trying to fucking snatch to fail. Yeah. To fail. Makes no like, sense. What? Taking a muscle to failure is, is a part of growth is taking it to exhaustion. Right. Yeah. So like, um, but when they do those studies, they typically, they vet people. So they make sure that they either train these people to learn how to use RIR properly, or they've gone through the right prerequisites to assume they can, but they've done studies on people who had no prerequisites prior. And they go, uh, the one I I'm very familiar with is they put 10, their 10 rep max on the bar for a bench press and they have a spotter and they're like, Hey, you're going to go to failure, put your 10 rep max on here. Um, and I want to say there's one person who, who got like eight. So there was like one person who was overzealous. Everybody else was, uh, I think the, the mean average was 16 reps and there was somebody as high as 26. Oh shit. Yeah. So out of the group, if the average was 16, it was supposed to be a 10 rep. It just shows you that people don't really know what is failure. Grant, these people had a spotter. So it was like for the first time they could actually really go balls of all failure. But that would also mean if they, if they truly understood RIR, then they would have got 11. Right. Right. Because the 11th, they would have failed and they would have had to have help from the spot because their 10 rep max would have been their 10 rep personal by themselves max. Right. But it wasn't. So, um, nobody it, hit 10. No. Okay. No. I, I, Out of the entire group. Like I said, I think there was one person that only hit eight. So I think they like right. overestimated. Right. Um, but what, from what I know, um, what, there was a lot of participants in it, but the average was 16. I know that in the highest was 26. There might have been in the, within that a couple people hit 10. But if the average is 16, we know that the vast majority went way over. And if somebody's in fucking 26, um, and it's also, I would even say going to failure is a skill mm-hmm. in anything because anybody listening, like if you've ever said, uh, yeah, I've done like my one rep max and failed, that's different than doing a 10 rep max failure. It's different than a 20 rep max failure. Yeah. It's different than doing an assault bike for 10 seconds to max effort failure. You know what I mean? Like they're all different. Right. It's different than a box jump max effort. Like that's not even really to failure. It's just a, like how high can you fucking jump? Yeah. And you might fail, but right. it's not like failure through exhaustion. It's failure through power. Um, it's failure through aerobic endurance. It's, you know what I mean? So um, it's different. I did a certification where I had to test a bunch of different things. And the assault bike was the one that was the hardest for me to really get because mm-hmm. they had a formula that actually broke down. Like if you're actually going to failure, your heart rate should be at a certain point. And I couldn't get my heart rate to that point at failure for me within this like certain bout of, of intensity, which really like, it took me a while to get, but really it was just, I was too mentally uncomfortable with going to that place on the assault bike. Cause I'd Mm. probably throw up or right. I'm just, I'm not a CrossFitter. I fucking hate the assault bike for max effort. So it's like, I just couldn't do it. But so when you're, um, when you're thinking about, okay, like this might not line up with the science, but I feel like this would be best for this person. Like what is the thought process behind that? So like, in, in the instance where you're like, oh, this person, like, if we do a diet break with them or this other person is like, hey, if we do intermittent fasting with them, they might actually constrain their calories. What's the thought process behind that? How do you know that that's something that might work out with them in the long term? Is it iterative? Is it, It's not, like, definitive, like, okay, this is what you're going to do for this amount of time or it's like we're going to try it for this amount of time, see how we feel. Yeah. Like, what's the approach there? I mean, obviously, it depends on... It depends on what the thing is that we're trying to implement, obviously. 
Um, and I try to make sure that people understand why still. So even like it, it, intermittent fasting, for example, I will still tell them like, this isn't magic. You right. know, I'm not going to lie, but I will base it on, you know, have they done this in the past? Did it work? Didn't it work? If it didn't, why didn't it work? If it did, why did it work? Um, how do you like, how, like how hungry are you in the morning? How hungry are you at night? Like, what is your schedule? Like all these different things and then present them with two pathways. And this is like motivational interviewing. It's, it's a, uh, for any coaches listening, it's an amazing thing to study, but giving somebody two paths to choose from is always going to lead to better adherence and success with them because they're deciding, they're committing, and it's their choice versus if I tell them to do X, Y, Z, they're going to be more likely to be resistant. Now, some people, if you're a good coach and marketer, you have the no like, and trust factor, right? So if I tell you to do something within a coaching setting and I've accomplished a good relationship with you, you're probably going to listen and do it and be successful with it. However, I still double down on this motivational interviewing path where I might say, if I truly believe intermittent fasting is the right path, I might tell you, that's one of the paths and here's the other path. And I might stack the pros on this one a little bit heavier, kind of persuade you a little bit more without you realizing because I want you to choose that path. And I know that's the better path. Both will work based on research, but this is probably gonna be the best one for you. And I know that. And I want you to choose it because I know if you choose it on top of it being the best one, your adherence is gonna be higher with the best plan for you based on what I know. Mm. Um, so it, it it really depends. It's so hard to say because in, in with training, it's the same thing. It's like... Um, Honestly, I, th- I think it, a big part of art of coaching is this, but like a big piece of it is just asking the right questions. You know, mm. what are you, what are you into? And, and like every week when you're getting an update, like seeing what they got excited about, seeing what they liked, seeing what they were um, in, in building awareness. Like I have a, I'm going to share it on my story today. Um, <laughs> the first thing in his update, he said, uh, I'm going to title this week, the blow your fucking mind week. And I was like, well, this is a good start, right? Or reverse dieting. And, uh, and he was like, he listed all the things that he was feeling from the reverse, better pumps, better vascularity, his joints weren't hurting as much, better hydration, all these things, uh, much of which he's probably heard me say, much of which I've kind of hinted at him will happen as we reverse because I want to create a positive pathway going into this reverse because a lot of people are resistant to it. And now he's noticing more of those things. So this isn't like placebo, like he's only yeah. getting pumps because I said he was going to, yeah. but like he's noticing them more because I pointed them out before they happened. And now he's like, his awareness is like waiting for these things. And then when he starts getting the, a better pump from it and seeing more vascularity, he's like, holy shit, this is working. Right. And then he probably trains harder, squeezes the dumbbell harder, gets a better pump, gets better results. You know, it just stacks. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, I think sometimes it's, it's when I see that now I can lean into that more. So if somebody is hyped up about some drop set or partials, or they felt something significant in a certain movement, I'm going to just like, we're going to go that route. Even if like science says this other exercise is better, like biomechanics would tell me that everybody's going to have a different exercise selection, but I'm going to lean on what they've told me. Um, and that'll dictate a lot of it. Again, I think it has to boil down to like, I'm never going to put something into a nutrition plan that tries to defy the law of thermodynamics, calories in versus calories out. But if I can pick apart the things that are maybe more like not evidence-based, more like, I don't want to say pseudoscience or guru ish because I hate those two things, but more like in the trenches, like there's nothing to back this up, but I've seen it work. Like if I can put those things in, it's going to help. It's going to help. Like even I think of this all the time with uh, like clean foods. Everybody hates like, you know, you got to be flexible and stuff. Anybody who follows a diet that has way more clean foods, they get better results. They get leaner. Like it's just a fact. Now, is it because the calories of a sweet potato are superior than the calories of something like white bread? No, but like the more processed something is, 
yeah, the less micronutrients are in it, people will kind of try to double down on that. But I would say that's probably not going to affect your body composition enough to lean on that. But the fact is, the more processed something is, the more likely it is that the food label is inaccurate, and therefore your calories and your macros are inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So people will double down on this idea of all calories, you can lose weight on any type of food because of the calories, and that's right. However, if we go into the real world, like what's actually happening when people eat a bunch of processed foods? Right. So um, maybe you know a, li- a little bit more about this, but if something goes through a certain amount of processing, wouldn't you be more likely to ab- absorb more of the calories from something that is more refined than something that is less refined or less processed? So like if you had a sweet potato, mm-hmm. 100 cal- quote unquote 100 calories of sweet potato and 100 calories of white bread, are you absorbing the same amount from both? I, I don't know of any research that would – the hard part there is that, like, typically the – less fiber in one. Right. There's less fiber in the other. Well, and, and, and the less refined something is, less processed something is, typically the more micronutrients are actually in there. Right. And, like, sometimes they fortify things like white bread stuff with nutrients. So do you absorb more of it? Maybe. But is there more present in the other one? Maybe. So does it bounce out? Probably. Okay. Right? And then the other side of it, too, is, is – and there is research to prove this, that the thermic effect of food is greater with – unprocessed food so with something that's highly processed and this makes sense it's it is more refined there's less work to be done and as far as Mm. digestion goes and part of digestion requires calories so your thermic effect food how many calories you burn digesting food lowers the more processed foods you have so for people listening this is not something where you're like i can only eat paleo foods because i'm going to burn so many more calories it's not that great it's not that significant um, but do they see that because digestion is greater with this food, so it takes longer to absorb everything, therefore they can't actually say that it, you know, you absorb as much at the beginning? I don't know. But um, we also know that uh, food labels can be 20 to 25% off. So anything that's processed now has a food label on it. Sweet potato, pa- uh, apple, steak, they don't really have food labels on it. Like you've got to find yeah. your best accurate thing. But when you're weighing those food, measuring those food, they're more likely to be more accurate. Um, anything in a box, anything from a restaurant, anything that's processed is less likely to be accurate from a macros perspective. Mm-hmm. So the inconsistencies increase compared to something else. Gotcha. So that doesn't necessarily mean that whole foods are better, but it means that somebody who's eating predominantly like bro foods or whole foods, meal plan style stuff, is probably going to be more accurate. Mm. You know? So, so, so I guess from a flexible standpoint, like it would make more sense if you're trying to be flexible to eat more of the unprocessed foods. But if you ate consistently, let's say on the flexible side, Mm -hmm. in the packaging, whatever, you know that this could be inaccurate. But it's not like if I eat 50 grams of, I don't know, fucking cereal, that it's going to be different if I pour a 50-gram bowl the next time. Exactly. Right, so as long as I'm consistent with that thing, I Mm -hmm. I at least have some form of tracking that. Yeah. And there's, there's even, there's even, so like one of the things against being too flexible would be, um, when we, we introduce more highly palatable foods, obviously we crave more. They're, they're less satiable from a nutrient perspective and there's combinations of fat, salt, carb. These things do trigger more cravings, so on and so forth. Um, so can you eat highly palatable foods and still lose weight as long as they fits in your calories? hundred percent. And they have research to show that, but are you more likely to eat, overeat? Probably. Like that's pretty well documented yeah. as well. Um, however, there's also research show, even with highly palatable foods, if you eat the same highly palatable food every single fucking day, you actually lower that yeah. desire to overeat. So cereal, for example, which can be a great pre or post-workout meal, especially if you use like vanilla protein powder for the milk. Right. If you're doing the same one every day, of course. Um, I think the problem becomes when we go like Mondays, Fruit Loops, 
Tuesdays cooked crisps. You know what I mean? Like you're just <laughs> shifting through them. Yeah. Um, and you're just eating too much of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I do think it can cause problems. I would even, man, I even think of like protein bars. Protein bars can be considered healthy. They got protein. There's nothing crazy in there. But I'm never, I can eat two in a row and I'm still not really satiated. Yeah. But if I have a uh, an apple and a chicken breast with some barbecue sauce and broccoli, yeah. I'm way more satiated. And it's just as many calories, if not more or right. less. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to say, but that's that's another example of like, well, research definitely proves that flexible dieting works. But I think there's there's value in being a little bit more rigid when we have a very serious goal. Right. Because I've just seen people, like they just, it's more accurate. They're more satiated. Their energy's better. Digestion's better. They feel better. Right. Um, and flexible dieting is an easy thing to take overboard. They're probably like less inflamed and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it, I think there's a balance to be had, obviously. And, and, you know, I still practice flexible dieting. But for me, it's it's very much like kind of what you were saying. Like, um, like I love ketchup. So I put ketchup on my eggs. It's Heinz. It's not like some organic tomato oh paste. I like oh Heinz God, ketchup. Heinz. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. You know, there's probably highly yeah. fructose corn syrup or some shit yeah. in there. But, but I use it every day. I use the same amount every day. And I put it on my fucking egg white slash whole egg scramble with spinach and mushrooms you know what i mean like yeah. super clean meal with some of that like yeah to me that's flexible dieting and then okay but again everybody's different some people can have one oreo at night and that's like that's all i need just one yeah one oreo yeah but if if you know that's not you just admit yeah. it and just don't do it like yeah i do um so there there's there there are times where um i'm kind of like yo you're gonna have to face the animal mm-hmm. and when, when i say that i mean like yourself and yeah. it's like you but not you it's the hungry you the less like willpower driven you like so if you're like i don't i don't really prep my foods i kind of just you know I'm, I'm flexible dieting all the way through i end up in the scenario and this is this kind of how it always goes it's like i kind of ended up just in the scenario where i didn't really have my food prepped and like this was all i had and then i ended up eating more of it and mm-hmm. it was like well you kind of set yourself up there yeah yeah, yeah. at the end of the day like the old saying um uh, if you if you fail to plan you plan to fail yeah it's just so true and that's part of why even with flexible dieting it's like okay well if you're gonna have a flexible diet add the food into your my fitness bubble four right or people say like what do you do when you travel it's like if i'm traveling for work it's different than with family obviously right but and in I should make this specific too, like for people listening, if you're constantly traveling with family then it, and you have a serious fat loss goal, it probably shouldn't be different. No. Um, I, I've been doing this for over a decade. I can stay lean pretty easily and I can be mindful. So I think it, it's definitely a different, like you can't compare apple right. to apple here. Um, but like, and I rarely ever travel with family, but like when I go for work, I'm just like, okay, well, where am I staying at? Like, where are we doing like the event? Where's the like spots to eat and stuff? Like, when I spoke in Austin was the last place I spoke at and I was staying with me and Brad shared a room. Um, actually he failed to book anything until the last minute. It was like, yo, can I crash the, I was like, all right, bro. But it's like, all right, where are we going to dinner? Cause I was in the middle of a cut for my photo shoot. Right. So it's like, I'm just going to look up the nearest steakhouse. I'm going to look up where the nearest grocery store is. I'm going to stock the fridge in the hotel. Like mm. it's really not that fucking hard. I did it in the terminal. It took me 15 minutes. You know what I mean? It's, it's really not that crazy. That is flexible dieting. I tried to eat as healthy as I could, yeah. but I was traveling. But the point is, I planned ahead. Right? Have you had this. Have you had clients where it, they know they know they're traveling, or they're they're going to be in a work event, and work provides the food, and always for the work event, um, it's never the food that they expect is going to be there. It's always bad food. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're like, I I almost know it's not going to be what I want it to be when I go there. Mm-hmm. Have you had situations yeah. where that comes? 
a lot actually because uh, I have a bunch of people in WWE and mm. the food's always catered. And you think something like that would provide a bunch of healthy food? Yeah, they don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's like a few healthy options, but here's here's what I would say to most people. And this is I've even had people that are in like the tech world and people mm. like that too. Um, there's a, there's a few things with this. Like number one, this isn't always like this isn't a blanket statement. It's not black and white like this, but ninety percent of the time, like companies are trying to be health conscious for people because everybody and their mother has a fucking peanut allergy or is gluten intolerant or thinks they do have something, you yeah. know, or they're vegan or whatever it may be. So they're constantly having all these other options. So people are like, there's never anything healthy. It's just not the thing they want to eat. Exactly. Yeah. No, there is. You just, you're just making an excuse. Um, the other thing is people are too embarrassed to ask ahead yeah. when it's as simple as emailing HR who granted you, they probably won't be there. Um, they probably just coordinate the event. Um, you probably won't ever talk to them again. You probably won't ever see them again. And even if you do, who cares? Being healthy is very fucking cool. They're like, not I think gonna be like, that's the person that asked me what was on the menu. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nobody actually thinks losing weight or getting healthy is stupid. Everybody is just honestly, like it really boils down to everybody. I did a video about this too. People have an insecurity about their ability to be disciplined and create willpower enough for themselves to accomplish what you're after. So when you're after something, they might throw hate at you mm. because they're not doing it. Right. So then you shy away from speaking about it yep. and you just say, fuck it, neat, whatever's there because you don't want them to know that you're trying to lose weight because you don't yep. want them to give you shit. Yep. Meanwhile, if you just realize that they're giving you shit because they're insecure about their own body and health and they can't discipline themselves like you can, you can actually go into that situation going, damn, I feel bad for this person. Mm. So when they throw you shade, you don't even, it doesn't even phase you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think part of it is that, like, they're afraid to speak up. And the other part of it is they just give in to temptation. So, like, um, I, I can even think about this. Literally, last night was 4th of July, mm -hmm. right, as we're recording this. And my wife was cooking stuff. My dad was coming over. Like, the neighbors kind of pop in and out. So she was, like, you know, chips and guac. And usually guac in front of me, man. <laughs> for real? It's going down. Okay. Um, and, and for whatever reason, I love Mexican beer too. So the combo there is like, this is not good, but I just got back from Vegas, you know? And then after Vegas, Saturdays are date nights. So we were going to kind of avoid it. But then I was like, no, I want to put something together that's special. I usually don't drink two nights in a row. So I did. And I like tried to manage my diet pretty well, but I definitely overate a little bit. So I was trying to pull back. And then Sunday I was good and started feeling better. And then Monday is 4th of July, mm. you know, it was in front of me, but I was like, you know what? Like I'm hungry and dinner's pushed out later than normal because we're waiting on my dad and all yeah. this stuff. We're going to eat somewhat healthy, but I just got to wait. And right. I did. I didn't touch a fucking chip. I didn't touch a beer because I just waited. Right. And I like, at the end of the day, it, it was hard. It required discipline, but I had to constantly remind myself. And a lot of people just go, oh, fuck it. It's holiday. Right. They give in. So a, a big piece of it is, is like, you know, it's not because I'm more motivated than you. It's because I'm more disciplined than you. And it's not like this cool high horse thing. It's just that the more you train discipline and willpower, the better you get at it. You right. know what I mean? And because there's really only healthy food in my house outside of like, fucking little unicorn cookies and shit that my daughter wants to eat that I just don't like that doesn't, yeah. you know, get me. Um, I don't have to use my willpower all the time. Mm. So if you remove a lot of it, you don't have to use right. it. So when this situation comes up, I'm like, I'm good. Like I can stay strong. And then we served dinner and we had like, we, we didn't do like the typical fourth side barbecue. Cause even my wife's like, I kind of want to just eat normal, but she did make like this. Uh, it was like a roasted peach, goat cheese pecan salad right healthy ingredients yeah. all the gallon stuff fat bomb you know right. pecans and goat cheese like <laughs> and, and so like that's another example most people would be like oh well I'll just choose the choose the healthy option it's like no i literally was like just cook me two chicken breasts instead of one tonight i'm gonna go over my protein intake but i would rather make that decision than go over my fats right 
normally if I didn't just go to Vegas, I would have been like, fuck it. It's 4th right. of July. Let me have a beer, have whatever. But I think that's a big piece of it too is like you go to this like luncheon at a work event and there's all these options and some of them look good. Some of them don't. Yeah. And the only reason they don't is because you have the other options around you. But if you had the healthy options at home, normally you would choose those because it does look good. But when you compare that to the whatever is on the other side of the buffet that they're serving you, like, yeah, it doesn't look as good. So, so two things. Um, one, I kind of wanted to jump in what you said about like when people are like, oh, they see you doing something and how you, you have you heard of Brene Brown? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what that person could be experiencing is a shame spiral. So they're like their way of processing you doing your diet thing. Cause you talking about diet food or, mm-hmm. or diet food, uh, you talking about dieting could bring awareness to how they feel about themselves. Mm. And then that process could send them into some sort of shame spiral and their way of processing shame might be attacking other people. Yeah. It's like so, a defense mechanism. Right. Right. And it's not necessarily that they're like really wanting to attack you. It's just like they're feeling the shame and they're kind of like, ah, like, yeah, that could be their way of processing. And it. subconsciously to them, you're causing that shame. Right. Even though you're not shaming them for right. trying to eat healthy. Yeah. Like one example that she made in the book was like this woman uh, gets a invitation to a kid's birthday party that's going to be at a pool. And automatically she's sent into a shame spiral because she's like, I don't like the way that I look in a bathing suit. Mm-hmm. And so like her husband's like trying to like talk to her or something like that. And she like, just like shuts him out and then like goes upstairs and locks herself in a room. Mm-hmm. And if you're the, hus- if you're the husband sitting there, you're kind of like, well, what the fuck did I do? Yeah. And, and in, in reality, you didn't do anything similar thing. It's like, you didn't mean to set this person off, but you might be doing yeah. that. And so yeah. that, that was one thing. Um, and then like, the other thing I was going to ask was as it pertains to making good decisions, like I know your process is to like educate your clients on like what is in what. And uh, like one of the early things is like you categorize things like you're like, these things contain more fat. Like oftentimes these foods are going to be fat and these are carbs and these are protein. So like, you're like picking apart the pieces of the recipe and you're like, that's a fat bomb. Mm -hmm. The education actually empowers people to make better decisions when they're at work events like that. Yeah. So like some people are like, you know, just write a meal plan for me. Right. But it doesn't give them the education that actually helps them in the long run to make the better decisions. hundred percent. I can even think of that situation like in the same work setting. Um, They got chicken and ham. Mm. First thing you think is like higher fat protein source, lower fat protein source. Right. Right. But this ham is just sliced roast ham, roasted ham. This chicken is chicken legs that's fried. Mm. Now, it's completely opposite. Right. That chicken is actually the lower protein chicken of the chicken, which is the legs. Right. And it's higher fat because it's brown meat versus white meat. And it's deep fried. Where this ham is sliced and roasted, so there's no deep frying. There's no oil. It's just it's fucking roasted ham. It's higher fat than a chicken breast. But, like, that's where if you, if you just say chicken good, you know, chicken's on my meal plan. This is the type of chicken. Right. Like, I'm going to eat this. Like, Ham's not, like, I don't eat pork, according to my coach. Right. That's an issue. You know what I mean? Right. Um, or if you're more in the paleo sphere and you're, like, thinking, like, we just eat healthy foods and we're just going to use our handful portions, and they go to eat that salad, and they're like, I don't understand why I'm not losing weight. And it's like, well, you eat 200 grams of fat a day. Like, right. you're not in a deficit, you right. know? Um, and that's where I think, like, even even from the standpoint of people, people get into the weeds of, uh, like, gen- general population people shouldn't be, like, 
tracking macros. It's too like OCD, all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but if you're like picking apart ingredients too much, that could become OCD. You know what I mean? So like having an understanding and awareness of what the ingredients are as well as the macros associated with it, we can go, hey, like nothing's off limits. Certain things are healthier than other things. And the macros are just a budgeting system to allow me to fit in what I want to fit in within my calories and still accomplish my goals. Right. Because if you ask a paleo person who's not losing weight and it's like, hey, do you just love this, the olives and almonds and, you know, olive oil and avocados that you eat yeah. so much that it's hard? And they're like, no, I just don't know what else to eat. It's, right. it's the healthy foods I'm allowed to eat. It's like, well, you're just not putting yourself in deficit. Right. You know what I mean? So you can eat. How about you eat oats and, sweet, and like rice? And they're like, oh, I can't because I'm paleo. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but you could save a lot of calories and lose weight. So right. um, the education piece is just so unbelievably important and it does empower people. And I often tell people too, that's part of flexible dieting is, is people like, well, if I'm on this work event, I have to like estimate some of my foods or guesstimate whatever's out there. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but a good guess is better than winging it. And at the end of the day, tracking macros is guessing anyway, because like that four ounce chicken breast, that's two grams fat and 26 grams protein. We don't know for a fact that yeah. it's exactly that right. or that every four-ounce chicken breast is exactly the same. And people think it sounds weird, but I've said it to so many clients and it clicks with them. It's like, do you think every chicken walked the earth and ate the same amount of food, walked the same amount of steps, had the same amount of muscle, same amount of hydration, same amount of nutrients, same farm raised, same parents? We know genetics plays a big role. Yeah. And they like laugh and I'm like, but that's legit. Like that, that chicken breast could be 23 grams protein, could be 30 grams protein. Who fucking right. knows? 26 is a really good estimate. That's as good as you're going to get. So trying to be... When I set your, your macros to 185 grams of protein and you think you need to be exactly 185, you're still not there. So you're right. creating an OCD tendency for no reason. You like it's, trimmed something off. Yeah, like. exactly. Like I often say, like, don't throw the one blueberry out to hit 100 grams. Like, yeah. it, it does not matter, you yeah. know. Um, that's part of flexible dieting, too. Right. So. I was going to ask you, um, like, around, like, do you know around what time frame you, have you always done flexible dieting or, like, been aware of flexible dieting? No. Okay. Not at all. What were you doing before? I tried everything, man. Um, so when I first got into all of this, I was trying to lose weight. And I was 18 years old. Just I graduated high school at 17. So I actually started trying to lose weight at 17. And the first one I did, uh, I just grabbed a men's health magazine. It was just like, I think it was Jay Cutler's diet or some shit, you know, okay. his cutting diet. Right. And because uh, I should be eating the same amount as a 300-pound steroid-using bodybuilder. <laughs> as a 17-year-old who's never lifted. Um, and so I just started following that. And it was basically just like, eat brown rice, tilapia, and asparagus four times a day. That didn't last very long. Um, especially because I didn't know how to cook. And then the second one, because I worked at a Rite Aid pharmacy, they had those HCG things. And it was basically like a droplet. Mm, yeah. You put this droplet yeah. in your tongue. And then and it's funny because I'm like, what did, that, hot back then. what did that shit even do? <laughs> I don't know, because you look at the meal plan, and you had to buy their special rice bars. It's like a, a rectangle rice cake, and you would eat those uh, three times a day. So that was like your first three meals, and then your dinner was brown rice, grilled chicken, and a green vegetable of choice. I'm like, that drop didn't do shit. I was eating 800 calories a day. Right. That's it. And I lost hella weight. I lost like 30 pounds. Mm. Gained it all back real quick. Right. Um, then I started kind of getting with it a little bit. And I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about that. I'm going to start training. I didn't want to go to the gym because I was just intimidated by the gym. But then I started going to the gym and just trying to eat cleaner. And that's actually what worked. And I started, I, I would like, I subbed whatever cereal I was eating for special K. I stopped drinking regular pop. I started drinking diet pop. I stopped eating white bread. I started eating whole wheat bread. So some of it was probably, I was actually just training hard. And some of it was, I was just, I mean, you go from fruit loops with 2% milk to special K with nonfat milk you're creating a deficit, you know? Right. So I started losing weight that way. 
Um, and then I started going to school for it and shit and, and started like learning more. Um, the first like diet I followed after that point to try to get really lean was intermittent fasting actually. And it was back when it was the warrior diet or the renegade diet by Jay Frugia. Um, this is way before any of this shit was cool. Lean gains was like starting to arise. And that was like right. Martin Burham before he kind of like went off the face of the earth for a while. Um, and that worked super well for me. Again, it just managed my calories. I was able to eat. I, I mean, I would wake up, go to school, and then I would go straight from school to the gym to intern. And then I would go from the gym to Rite Aid to work and close threaded. So it just made sense. I was like, I'll just start eating after I'm done with school, which was at around like one, right. 2 p.m. So I would finish, grab something on the go, which is usually like something from Super Subs, muscle milk and a protein bar. And then I would uh, eat something again right before I trained. I'd have a huge meal at night. Like that was just what I did. Right. And it worked. And then I tried to put clients on it and it didn't work for right. 75% of them. Um, and then I hired a bodybuilding coach to do a, uh, a prep. And I did a 12-week prep, got absolutely shredded, but it was a meal plan. So when I adjusted or he adjusted the plan, it was like take oats out of meal one right. or like one slice of bread instead of two. Right? Right. But there was no macros associated with it. So I didn't right. understand what was going on. Right. Crushed it, got shredded, went on a cruise raft show, said, I'm good coach piece. Like I know what I'm doing now. Gained all of it back. And then that's mm-hmm. when I discovered uh, first Lane Norton, then Eric Helms. So I started researching because I was like, what the fuck's going on with my metabolism? Found uh, metabolic damage at the time. By Lane Norton, he was sitting by his pool. This was probably like 2012, I think, when he made those videos. And then that led me down a rabbit hole, found Eric Helms, Muscle Strength Pyramids on YouTube, mm-hmm. like way back. And then I just started going down this crazy right. rabbit hole, got certified with nutrition and stuff like that. And that's when I kind of discovered flexible dieting, gotcha. like the bodybuilding forums and shit like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, mine was like, mine was like, you know, Omar Esau, mm-hmm. uh, Matt Ogus. Yep. So like, I found Elms through Ogus, mm-hmm. and, like, before all those guys was the Hodge twins. Yep. Remember them? Yep. Um, and so when they were doing their version of flexible dieting, it was kind of like, oh, we eat one fucking crappy meal, and then sometimes we pound some protein shakes. Yeah. And so my flexible dieting kind of looked like that. Yeah, a lot of people's did. Right, so, like, it was, like, one meal at Cheesecake Factory and then fucking eight scoops of protein. Yeah. I don't know. It was something ridiculous. So mine was the opposite. I found Eric Helms and I found Ogus through him. So like, mm-hmm. because I went that route, I think it was a little bit di- different me. Cause I remember seeing, um, even this book right here on Aragon, um, Eric Helms a little bit, but mainly it was like Alan Aragon and a couple other guys way back on the forums telling people that they could have a pear instead of a banana or chicken instead of tilapia. Like that was what flexible dieting was to bodybuilders. Yeah. So that's kind of how I interpreted it. I was like, right. oh, that meal plan I was following. Let me like, and I literally went back to the meal plan and I, I fucking entered everything into a spreadsheet of like, here's how many calories I was eating. And I went back to every adjustment my prep coach made to see the adjustments he made calorically. And it really panned out to like what you would do. You create a decent deficit at the beginning and then you adjust by like five to 10% every time you need to keep the weight loss going or add cardio. And once I understood the numbers, then I was like, okay, let me like, like I really got sick of that. Like I I think it was tilapia at the time, to be honest with you. I was like, let me switch that for something else. And like, I started kind of seeing how that worked. Mm. And then I found people who were doing more like if it fits your macros on YouTube, you know, and like the Hodge twins or, um, what was the, the other dude, yeah, I think him and Matt Ogus had some like fake Chris beef. Chris Jones. Yes, yeah. um, Chris Jones. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just saw him upload a video the other day. Actually, I was like, "Damn, he's still out there." Yeah, I know. Yeah, but uh, then I started watching all that kind of stuff and and seeing what they were doing, and I didn't really buy into it because I had already I started with a better foundation. I think just because I found Eric Helms first. Yeah. Um, 
but then I found Ogus because he used to sit down with Eric and do those interviews and shit. Right, yeah. But. Yeah, it was, yeah, because, like, what, I think Ogus, like, he attracted a lot of the people because he had yeah. this crazy six-pack transformation. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is what I did to get my six-pack. And then, like, you see Elms pop up, and he's like, he's he's helping him with nutrition. You're like, oh, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you're like, follow this guy. Yep. He must know what he's talking about. Yep. So yeah, so I think, yeah, that was, that was kind of the route I went. Omar, like, had an evidence-based approach mm-hmm. um, to some degree. But so you're like, I'm getting a mixture of, like, a lot of the bro from, like, Chris Jones and the Hodge twins, and they they would claim to be, like, science-based, but, like, a lot of it was not. They'd be like, oh, this yeah. is what the scientists say, and then they do their thing. Yeah. So, um, but, dude, all of it, like, I think um, kind of early on was, like, that was, for me, like, when everything was magic, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, they were also doing not just, like, if it fits your macros, but they were also doing intermittent fasting. And they thought that, like, that was for sure the reason they had lost their lower belly fat. Yeah. Well, because insulin sensitivity and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, even, I remember Poliquin even had some stuff out about, like, like you're going to store more body fat around your midsection if your insulin sen- sensitivity is poor, if you have high cortisol levels, a lot right. of, like, stuff that's just not really proven. Mm-hmm. Um, the cortisol stuff, maybe, but you'd have to be, like, seriously fucked up with cortisol levels for that to be accurate. Mm. Um, and even with insulin sensitivity, it's the same thing. Like, But as you get leaner, doesn't, doesn't it improve anyway? Bingo. Yeah. So there's no difference. If you're if you're in a calorie deficit, same thing with like uh, autophagy. People are like, mm. oh, well, yeah, but intermittent fasting helps you live longer because autophagy. It's like, well, a calorie deficit creates autophagy. Right. So do you still get autophagy if you're intermittent fasting? If you are in or a surplus? surplus? Yeah. They don't know because they haven't done that study yet. You know, mm. so it's like, I don't know. And there's, you know, if you look at blue zones and places where they live over 100 years old, they are typically eating less calories than the normal person. So it just shows that, like, although I think it's not good to be in a chronic deficit and it's not good to be in an aggressive deficit constantly, like we preach all the time because it's a stress on the body, there's also reason to believe that, you know, putting yourself into a deficit at periods of time is that probably a really good thing. So, like, dieting once a year is not a bad idea. Right. And if you have really serious physical pursuits you want to put on a muscle – there might be a time where you got to wait because you need to gain all year round. Like that makes sense. But if we're just talking health, then I think having cycles of maintenance and deficits is actually important for health. You I know, guess one last thing I wanted to jump in with you was kind of like, so what kind of spurred all this? Um, why I wanted to hear from you was the fact that you were like, okay, like, yeah, like science might say like, we should go longer sometimes with our diets and like other mm-hmm. times we can go a bit more aggressive. And they're like, this is why this has been my approach. And like that selection process and like how you knew what to do for you. Yeah. And is there a way for somebody to implement that similar framework for themselves? It's like, okay, I need to know this about myself so that I can do X. And like, maybe like, again, that also applies to like certain things you do in business where it's like, okay, right now I'm going to go really, really hard. These other periods, I'm still going to go, but just like, it's going to look like this instead. Yeah. I think that, so the, the first one I'll attack is like the, the overarching, like for business and stuff like that, just the overarching theme. 
um, you know, that's, I've always been really big on like the four quadrants of life, right? Whether you want to call it body, being, balance, business, fitness, faith, family, finance. Like there's so many people that do this shit, but there's really just those like four pillars in your life that people focus on. One's your health. One is your mindset, your emotional well-being, spirituality, connection to God, whatever. One is going to be your relationships, whether it's a spouse or family or friends or whatever. And then one is going to be your business, your finances, your career, savings, so on and so forth. Um, in my experience, if you try to set big goals in every one of those areas, you're not going to accomplish any of them. Mm. Or they're just very small goals. And that's where, like, your standards are just too low. So I do think there's, like, this there's this idea of, like, produce and protect. So it's, like, quarter one, maybe you set this huge goal for business and for your relationship. But it's, like, hey, like, let's not diet right now, you know, <laughs> and let's not go on some, like, crazy spiritual retreat or try to find God. Like, let's just focus on these two things. And then maybe after you accomplish, like, you know, uh, an amazing relationship and a huge business, you go into protection mode. It's like, okay, now I'm going to protect these two categories. Now I'm going to push my physical fitness and my spirituality, right? So we can categorize that. And that's kind of how it's always been for me. I mean, even like I just got as lean as I've ever gotten and I'm sustaining it pretty well. Um, I would say I'm like a little bit heavier than I was on my shoot, but the leanest I've been in a long time and I feel great, but like I wasn't full throttle on the business during that time intentionally i was like okay well how can we like just have fun with content how can we refine systems how can i like give back more to my team things that don't take a lot of brain power for me but i know are important right. um and i'm not going to be mad if we don't see leaps and bounds in the business right um and then there's other categories where i'm like every week i'm thinking of like just crazy unique ways to date my wife or give her gifts or leave her notes and like take blakely for daddy daughter dates stuff like that putting a lot of effort and attention to my family and then i'm cooling off on my physical fitness right so I think there's definitely this ebb and flow with that. But when we think of this type of thing with a diet and how to approach that, um, there's less things to worry about. It's either do I, like one, do I diet right now or not? But then after that, it's- How like, do you know that? How, if you should diet right now yeah. or not? That one is like, I mean, number one, going back to the first thing that I said, are you focusing on the, uh, all those categories, right? right? Is this a time where you can- go into like that protection mode for the others. Like, hey, like your career, your family, like all those, are those in a good place? And you can just like, they can maintain for the next three to six months, like however big your goal While is. you put these like other things on your Bingo. plate. Bingo, yeah. Because you have other large habits that need to be in play mm -hmm. in order for you to do this. Yeah, right? and they're going to take more time and attention from you. And if the answer is yes, great. Um, the other thing is going into like, how stressed are you? Obviously, if you're super stressed, you're not going to be very successful. Mm. Whether that's and, – and me and uh, Brandon Roberts on my team did like a research review on um, does cortisol stop fat loss, does stress stop fat loss? Because um, there's like this thing where like once – if your body's producing too much cortisol or stress, like you, you literally can't lose body fat. Mm. It's actually not true. Um, a big piece of it is one, cortisol retains water. So a lot of times it's just masking the weight loss you're actually seeing. Right. And unless you can, you know – de-stress and flush out that water you won't see the progress you're making if you don't see the progress you're making you're not motivated to continue and then you just don't right. you kind of give up right. right and then the other side of it is that um higher stress levels uh poor sleep higher cortisol they induce cravings and overeating so a lot of times it's not because you can't lose weight it's because you can't stay consistent if you're constantly like triggered to overeat because cortisol is too high um but nonetheless you still like that's and that goes back to the whole evidence-based thing well, evidence actually doesn't say that cortisol stops fat loss. Actually, it's a mobilizer, so it can actually be promotive of fat loss depending on how you're using it and if you're able to trigger cortisol while you're training and when it's needed and then pull it back when you need to recover. However, like if stress is chronically high, you won't lose weight. Right. So in one sense, it's true, but it's not true because of what people thought, you know, based right. on research. So those kind of things come into play of like whether you should diet or not. 
period, you know, because if you're stressed, your life doesn't support it, so on and so forth. Um, and then there's plenty of times too where people will come to you, you know, and they're chronic dieters. It's like, you've just been dieting too much or you have body dysmorphia. Like you, you actually don't need to lose weight. You need to build muscle. And I see this mostly with women who have tried to lose weight constantly. And I'm like, you're not even overweight at all. Like you need to eat more food and lift heavy, stop doing cardio, stop dieting. Um, but then once we get into the diet, if somebody is like, Let's say they, they, we check off the box and we're like, yeah, you're, you're good to die. Let's do it. Um, should you go fast or slow is the next question. You know, right. and I think that I've changed my opinion on this over the years. I, we actually just literally aired a video on YouTube about this today as we're recording this. And like, there was a lot more research to support the idea of going slow because you're more likely to maintain muscle tissue, but there's more research coming out now that shows muscle t- like atrophy during diet is very hard. It's very difficult to actually accomplish. And a lot of it is, is glycogen depletion. Yeah. So a lot of what you lose muscle-wise during a diet usually is, is just going to be replenished as soon as you start actually eating food again and training properly. Um, so during the reverse or during refeed, stuff like that, and that's another reason why maybe those diet breaks and refeeds are important, you know. Um, but there was a recent study that I talked about in the video that had uh, a severe and a moderate deficit group um, the severe group did four months of like a very, very aggressive phallus diet and then eight months of like slow and steady. So there was a 12 month study, which is really cool, but like four months of just grinding and then like pull back and just ease into it for the rest of the year. Whereas the moderate group just did slow and steady the whole time. And the group that did severe first actually lost more, uh, fat mass by double by the end of the year. And they didn't lose any more muscle tissue or strength at the end of it. They tested mm. everything because if you would have looked at the, like from what I could tell in their interpretation and I listened to a couple of people interpret it too, at the four month cutoff after the aggressive phase, right. they did lose some, right. but they replenished it during the eight month follow up. Right. So by the end of it, they lost more fat right. and didn't lose anything. Yeah. What's the timeline that you're looking at? Exactly. Yeah. So if we do a three month study and we go, oh, there you go, lose more fat. It's like, yeah, but we've got our answer. Exactly. There's but with the your, evidence <laughs> with, with your clients, right. you don't do that shit. Right. You know? Exactly. They go through a three month cut and then you help them after the three months, you right. know? So um, that's where things start to change. And uh, the only downside was like they saw a little bit more of like um, bone mineral density decrease in the hip. The, the caveat mm-hmm. is that the the participants were between 45 to 65 years old and they were postmenopausal. So women who have already gone through menopause. So you go, okay, does that have anything to do with the bone mineral density? Did they try to prevent the bone mineral density by food selection or supplementation? Probably not because uh, they weren't expecting it. Right. Now we have research, so we can't expect it. Right. And then the other side of it too is like it, a 60-year-old, a 50-year-old, whatever woman going, that is postmenopausal is like the prime candidate to probably lose muscle tissue during a, an aggressive diet. And if they didn't, right. I think we're good for most right. people. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm, I lean a little bit more towards rapid approaches now than I used to as long as I have enough time to help them reverse afterwards because mm-hmm. I think that and again at, at first we got to give them the options because some people's personality type just doesn't work well with that right. but more often than not the intrinsic motivation of somebody is going to be greater if we give them fast results oh yeah because it, it, you end up talking somebody into a longer process than exactly so if you go the first four weeks and you don't see anything, I mean, fuck, you got to notice something to keep yeah. going you know so yeah. I think that a big piece of it at, is just that at the same time if, if they're like, if it's slower, but they are seeing something, they might be like, okay, well, you know, this feels easy right now mm-hmm. versus like if you're putting their ass on, yeah. on fire out the gate yeah, and for some reason they didn't see it then mm-hmm. they're like, cause that, that happens too, where somebody's having a really hard time in the beginning 
And then they're like, I don't know if I can. Yeah. I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. But, you know, and I think, and this is where it's so different every person because, um, you know, some would argue that like, well, if you have a person that's 100 pounds overweight, fuck yeah, be aggressive. They're not going to lose muscle. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, don't because they're not going to adhere to it. Right. And you don't need to. Right. You can just put them a little deaf. They're going to lose weight. Like, right. it doesn't take much to get somebody to lose weight when they're 100 pounds overweight. Right. Um, and then you can think about the person who is 10 pounds away from being stage ready. Right. They're probably more likely to lose muscle tissue than somebody who's just generally losing fat. So right. do you still go fast? But at the same time, there's really no way to not be aggressive at that point because you're already Everything leaner than your body. Relative bo- percentage yeah, wise. Exactly. Like huge. You're already leaner than your body wants you to be anyway. So like that's where a lot of it just kind of goes out the window. It's like right. there's no perfect study. What like one percentage point when you're that lean is like it could be sometimes it could be like a pound. Yeah. And it's noticeable. You right. Know? You like, lose oh. a quarter of a pound and you can notice it. <laughs> right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So um yeah, it's hard to say. I, I am uh with a lot of the people we work with, I would I call them like advanced gen pop. Mm. So typically they are general population, but they're into this stuff. They study. They've re- read my blogs or yep. listen to the podcast. So they kind of like to geek out a little bit. Yep. They've been um, training for some amount of time. Exactly. Yeah. I typically like more of an aggressive approach at the beginning mm. and then pull back and, and ease into a slower reverse. Um, it just so You'll it, just let them know how it's going to feel like yeah. to be aggressive early on yeah. like hey we're expecting this but like exactly yeah. and that's a big piece of the coaching process right is right. mapping out the periodization plan and saying like here's what we're doing here's what we expect here's how you're going to feel right this is why we're doing it right and when you give them the clear-cut pathway there's no resistance to it right it's easy to adhere so a couple things kind of surrounding your entire thought process on on a lot of these things it's it, a lot of them weren't like hey we might go counter to the research mm-hmm. it's like hey, how can we use what we know about people to get them closer to the research mm-hmm. in, in most cases? Yeah. That, that it didn't seem like you were like, ah, fuck science. Yeah. It, it was like, hey, like, we're going to do this thing that doesn't necessarily line up with the science, but it's in order to get you closer to the science. Like, yeah. the, like the drop set, like people not getting close enough to failure. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, we know that about a lot of people. Like the science does suggest that. Yeah. That most people can't accurately, like, find out what their 10 rep max is, actually 0% of people in that study. (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to do this thing that doesn't necessarily line up with the science, but it's going to get you closer to actually lining up with the science. So um, it's it's kind of interesting because it wasn't like, it's bro in the sense that it it isn't hard hard to find in the science, but it was like, how do I get you closer to what the the science actually says? Non-scientific methods that inch you closer to the science, basically. And and even like with, like, like, I think a big piece of it too is, I try to look at the research and pick apart the things that actually matter where a lot of people just take it as like a blanket statement, you know? So like even I remember when the Matador study came out as a nutrition coach, everybody was hyped up. It was like, oh, this is the way you diet. Two weeks on, two weeks off. Like this is it. But then you start picking it apart and you're like, yeah, but the two weeks on, two weeks off had to diet for 32 weeks versus 16 weeks. So really is it like, like even if they got better results, how many people can you commit to eight months of dieting? Like that's a long fucking time, Mm -hmm. you know? So then you start thinking about that and then you go, okay, well, does it have to be two weeks on, two weeks off, right? Can it be two weeks on, one week off, two, three weeks on, one week off? Can right. it just be like two days in a row every, every couple of weeks? Like right. what about this is what they were trying to focus on making beneficial? Right. How can I manipulate that to still abide by the science, but do it in a more practical way for the person? Right. You know, and that's where it was like, I started using one week diet breaks whenever I felt it was necessary. Right. It could be like at first it was every 12 weeks and then it was like, you know, or sorry, 12 weeks would be a long time, but let's say it was after like six or seven weeks. And then it was after like four or five weeks. Then it was after like three weeks. 
And eventually it's like every week you have a two or three day refeed because you need it and you're getting leaner and it's necessary. You know, there's no hard rules to this stuff. Right. And then as it pertained to kind of intensity surrounding like your approach to certain things, like whether to cut fast or whether knowing or not, like this is a good period to diet. It was kind of like, Hey, like does this line up with the other things in my life? You had a holistic view. You're not just looking at just like, Oh, because I am a nutrition coach. I'm just going to look at the nutrition piece. Mm -hmm. It's, it was kind of like, Hey, like what's going on in your life? Is this actually going to be a reasonable time for you to commit to this? Yeah. Um, and then, um, then like being like, okay, well now that I know that I can do that, here are some strategies and like looking at lifestyle factors, like when they work, when they're hungry, yeah. like actually getting to know them. And these are things that people could do with themselves to like understand that. But like, if you don't know the appropriate questions to ask yourself, it can be incredibly difficult. Yeah. That's why a lot of people run in circles and they don't find the strategies that work for them as opposed to coming to, you know, coaches like us that like, can put them through that process and then they're like now going in the right direction. It's emotional intelligence. Right. Now this is why like as a coach, you got to know more than just what their goal is and what time they show up to the gym. Right. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people are like, Oh, that's out of my scope of practice. (laughs) Nothing is out of my scope of practice to talk about. I might not prescribe you something. I can't, (laughs) but like I always did. That was always so funny. Me people are like, well, I'm not a therapist. It's kind of out of my scope of practice. I'm like, I'm, I'm a great listener. I can listen to anything. What is therapy? I've been. It's fucking listening. And you're not necessarily telling, like, you're not always telling somebody what to do. You're Mm -hmm. providing a, you're like, hey, you know, based on what I'm hearing, these sound like they could be potentially good options. How do you feel about them? You know, and you're A lot of times they find the answer. Right. You know what I mean? That's how therapy was too. I never got an answer from my therapist. It was just like, by the end of it, I was like, oh, well, there it is. I got my answer. I told you. Thank thank you. Yeah. Thanks (laughs) for pulling that out of me. Right. Yeah. It's not out of my scope practice. Right. You know, so, um, I, and I think that's what being evidence-based is. It's taken, like, being in the trenches, the art of coaching, emotional intelligence, working with people hands-on, real people, and bridging that to the to science, right. like actual research. When those things come together, that is evidence-based. Right. Dude, so, that was, I mean, you answered my questions. Dope. Yeah. Yeah, that was really, really good, man. Um, I'm stoked to get this done. I'm glad you came here to do it. Of course. So, yeah. thank you for having me on, and thank you for being on mine, because this will go on both. Yeah, uh, it was awesome, man. Thank you so much. 